I want you to open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 15. We've been reading as a family through Exodus in chapter 15, the song of Moses captured my attention and I want to bring out a few things, Lord willing, from that this morning. So if you would follow along as I read, I'm going to read the first 18 verses Though it will become apparent as I read, this is the song that Moses led the children of Israel in just after they crossed the Red Sea, just after the Lord had greatly delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. So this is a song of Moses, yes, but it's also a song of deliverance. It's a song of redemption. It's the greatest song of freedom. Moses says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. He is my God. And I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the excellence of your and in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them all like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, Fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people, now this is the surrounding nations, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over, whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which hands your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. 
For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Would you pray with me? Father, we've come to this portion of your word and we ask your blessing upon it. Lord, we want to feel as fervently as Moses in this song of his. We want to feel as deeply the freedom that you have given us in Christ. The great power of sin and the adversary, the devil, that you have overcome. Father, help us in these next few moments to reap the full benefit of these verses. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What we read when we read the book of Exodus is God's mighty working toward the deliverance of a people who had been enslaved over 400 years in Egypt. But I want to tell you that their salvation pales in comparison to yours. If you're in Christ, the salvation that Israel acquired from God pales in comparison to the exodus from sin that you and I have been delivered from. The exodus of the people of God out of Egypt is historical fact. It really happened. No sane believer doubts it. But it's written here and recorded for us and happened certainly for their good. The Lord heard their cries. They were real people and had real prayers. The Lord heard them, brought them out of Egypt. They even brought Joseph's bones with them. But this has been recorded for us and happened in the first place as a type or an example. As a picture of what happens to every believer that comes out of sin into Christ. All of the imagery applies. The sea has been parted. And where we should bog down in the muck and the mire of our sin, making our way across, we walk across on dry land. And we do so by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? I've tried to imagine this week what it would have been like to be a part of this train as they made their way across the Red Sea, which the scriptures tell us were, were piled back in heaps. I don't know how tall the water rose, but I'm assuming that it was pretty high. And here go the people of God right through the middle of it. And they find safe passage and make their way to the other side. So I want to go back and read the last two verses of chapter 14. Because this really helps us set the stage for the greatness of this song. This again is the song of Moses on the occasion of recent delivery from Egyptian slavery. The power of God has been on display in the book of Exodus in a great way. In Genesis, it's on display in acts of creation, flood, those types of things. 
In Exodus, it's on display by God working in nature to set his people free. You remember reading in Exodus, I won't give you the jingle we have at home that I made up about the plagues. One of my kids might sing that for you later, but I'm not going to. But it helps me remember the blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the death of livestock, the boils, the hail, fire, thunder, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn. All of that these same people had seen. Now they are about to make their way through the Red Sea. They see Pharaoh's army approaching and they're filled with fear and dread. They do make it through. The last two verses of chapter 14 give us some perspective. Verse 30 says, So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And this is their reaction. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Two things are said. They feared and they believed. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. One more thing about this song in general. We rightly view this song as a song of our own deliverance. And let let me tell you why. I'm going to read some verses out of Revelation 15. The first four verses, you can just listen. This is interesting, it's encouraging, it's helpful. Revelation 15, verse 1, John says, I saw another sign in heaven. This is the fourth cycle of revealings made to John about the wrath of God that's going to come on those who are not found to be in the Lamb. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Now, now, these are those that have been redeemed of God, saved of God, having walked across the sea of salvation, so to speak, In Revelation chapter 15, what are they singing? Verse 3 says, they sing the song of Moses. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb. And then to paraphrase this song, this is what John hears them singing. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just, Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For judgments have been, your judgments have been manifested. That's the first four verses of Revelation 15. Here the saints of God are singing the old song of Moses. 
Now, it's being sung, no doubt, in a new way, in accords with the new song that is put in their heart. But it's the words that we're reading right here out of Exodus 15. And I want to make this, this one statement before we get involved in, in this song. The great hymns of the faith with true words about God, true words about salvation, true words about heaven, true words about God's attributes, true words about the gospel. When those are sung with a heart of the worshiper intent upon magnifying and glorifying the Lord. God is praised and he receives great worship. And it's not just the old hymns of the faith. You realize the old hymns of the faith were once new hymns, right? The old hymns of the faith that we love to sing that were written in the 1700s and the 1800s, those were once upon a time brand new. And so we sing songs that Accord to the truth. And when we do, the Lord is praised and, and worshiped. That's, that's the premise. This song that Moses sings is based upon several things. It's based upon his recent experience of salvation, God's wondrous works. But it's also based upon the character and attributes of God. Those things have to match. If they don't match, something has gone awry. If your experience that you are singing about and praising the Lord about doesn't match the scriptures and the character and attributes of God, something has gotten off the track. Our experience never triumphs over the reality of scripture. And so I want to go back to these two words in the 31st verse of chapter 14, where it says they feared and believed the Lord. Do this with me. I want you to look in the same chapter. You don't have to go far. Verse 24, Exodus 15, 24. The people complained against Moses. Don't have to go much further. Chapter 16, verse 2. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they said, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And if you skip down to the eighth verse. At the end of that eighth verse, Moses says, your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Moses is saying, don't blame me. I realize I'm an easy scapegoat, but your complaints are against the Lord. All of this is his doing. It's not mine. Moses, in a sense, defending himself. The point that I want to make to you is that the fearing and the belief of the 31st verse was done by the majority 
in a hypocritical manner. How long did it take them to go back to their old murmuring and complaints? About half a chapter. <laughs> and think of what they had just seen. Think of what they had just seen walking across the sea because the Lord had just killed the firstborn in Egypt, but he spared them because they had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. Miracle after miracle after miracle they had seen. This is the same thing that Jesus is referring to when he's addressing Thomas in John chapter 20. Remember what Thomas said, unless I see it, unless I see the print of the nails in his hand, which interestingly enough is the only way that we know Jesus was nailed to the cross. You read the gospel accounts, those details aren't given. We don't assume them. We base our understanding of that based on what Thomas said, unless I see the print of the nails in his hands. Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The people of the Exodus, many of them were those who feared and believed based upon what they had seen in the moment. When the moment passed, murmur and complaint against the Lord. That's why Jesus' words are so important. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Are you in that number? Are you in the number of those who have not yet seen Jesus but believe? The writer of Hebrews tells us, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we want, we want to be of the number whose fear and belief is not dictated by current circumstance. We want to be of the number who are believing against all odds, believing against sometimes even reason. We want to be believing though we have not yet seen. We don't want our belief based upon what we've seen because we haven't seen anything. We haven't seen with a physical eye the resurrected Christ. We haven't seen with a physical eye the empty tomb, but we read of them in his word and we take him at his word and we profess faith in what he has said. We believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. We believe that he ascended into heaven and that as we have sung and read about this morning, that there is a time that only the Father knows when he will descend out of heaven with a mighty shout, the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God. And then the great ingathering. So if you are waiting, my unbelieving friend, if you are waiting on something to happen that will give you some tangible and real evidence that you can see, if that's what you're after, then do this. Open your Bible and read the Word of God through the Gospels. And my prayer for you is that the Lord would awaken you to see in his word the truth. You're not going to have a vision. In truth, you're not going to have a vision. You're not going to hear an audible voice from God. God's not going to awaken you like he did the boy Samuel by speaking to him from heaven. 
All of those ways of God interacting with us are past. Now, obviously God is God. He can do what he wants. But if we look at the normal pattern of Scripture, those days are gone. You want to hear a word from the Lord? As my friend says, open your Bible and read it out loud. You've just heard a word from the Lord. So all of this is important as we get to this song of Moses. Now, no doubt, there are some... Though I think they're in the minority, there are some who sing this song along with Moses out of true fear and true belief. They're the remnant. They're that small party of people that God maintains throughout the old and even the new covenant. There is a remnant of believers who are fearing and believing against all odds. So I have four points out of this verse, out of this 15th chapter. The first is the determination to praise God because of the display of his power. The determination to praise. The second is this praise is directed towards a display of power, yes, but it's over a mighty enemy. And then thirdly, this praise is formed in words of truth. And fourth, when the true people of God praise God in truth, the world takes notice. So let's look at those in turn. The first, the determination to praise God based on the display of his power. Look at verse 1. Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord. You can rightly accuse me of repetitiveness concerning these two words, I will. I know I draw this to your attention very often. But we can't miss these words. The Psalms are full of these words that express the determination to worship. Worship is a determined purpose of heart and mind. Worship, true worship, does not happen by accident. Worship that is in spirit and in truth is not accidental. It is purposeful. It is a result of a determination. Lord willing, as we made our way into this place this morning, this was our determination. Each one of us having in our heart said when we woke up this morning, I will sing to the Lord. Obviously, in the, in the context of the gathering of the saints, this is the Lord's day. This is the assembly of the saints of which we are told in the scriptures not to forsake the assembling of because it's beneficial and helpful for me and you and glorifying to the Lord. So Moses says, based upon this great display of power, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Moses had a right perspective. Moses had not yet fallen prey to the frivolity of contemporary worship. What I mean by that, Moses did not say, I will sing to the Lord for I have triumphed. That's not what he says, is it? He says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. 
Moses understood, I was just a bystander in this show. The Lord did all the work. I got from this side of the sea to the other side because the Lord in mercy carried me along and he he parted the waters and he made the ground dry and he stalled Pharaoh and his army. And I walked across. He has done it. He has triumphed gloriously. If you want to worship with a determined purpose, give God the glory. It's not to detract from the fact that we reap tremendous benefits. But God is the one who has triumphed. Moses reiterates, reiterates that in the second half of verse 1. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. I, I want you to go back into verse, in, in the chapter 14 and look at verse 5 where Pharaoh asks the question, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Pharaoh has, has in a sense come to his senses, though the Lord has said repeatedly he will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will repent of letting them go, change his mind. That's exactly what he's done. But he says here, in this, the scriptures tell us in verse 6, so he made ready his chariot and took people with him. He took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the point here is, Pharaoh is coming with a vengeance, so he thinks. He's got his choice chariots, his, his choice charioteers in them. And he is coming. But the second half of verse 1 says, The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Notice how distinctly and how precisely the Lord works. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. There wasn't a remnant of danger left. Complete deliverance. You realize this is a picture of the salvation that you and I now enjoy. We have been completely delivered. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, not just a little bit of it, or a lot of it, but the whole, all of it, has been dealt with. Verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him. I will ex- my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Now notice verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains, what about them? What about the best of the best? His chosen captains are also drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. What about your chosen sins? Where are they? Drowned in the depth of the sea. Separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Never to surface against you again. You have received a complete deliverance. 
The right hand of the Lord has become glorious in power. Verse 6. Your right hand has dashed the enemy in pieces and the greatness of your excellence. You have overthrown those who rose up against you. You sent forth your wrath and it consumed like stubble. In the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright as a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. I don't want to make too much of this or press this or squeeze this too hard, but I think verse 6, 7, and 8. somehow resembles the experience of Christ on the cross as there the Father dealt with Him instead of me. And verses 6, 7, and 8 is what the Lord did against Egypt to deliver Israel. Verse 6, 7, and 8 figuratively is what the Lord did to my Lord for my deliverance. And he did this, the second point is, over a mighty enemy. Pharaoh was no joke. He was the real deal. We would say he was armed and dangerous. And by this time, he had a hardened heart several times over. He was mad. He had assembled his army and he was coming. Verse 9 are representative of his words, what was in his heart as he pursued the enemy, as he had their death, their destruction, their, their ruin in his mind. Here you can make the equation, and I think rightly so, you can make the equation between Pharaoh and Satan. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, pursuing the people of God, wanting to kill them. And these are his words in verse 9. But can't you see how they would apply to the adversary of all truth himself? The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And he was armed and ready to carry out just that. And he would have if he could have, but he could not. The same applies to Satan. And believer, I'm talking to you. If he could destroy you, he would, but he cannot. He is like a dog on a chain. There are now limits to where he can go concerning you. He'll tempt. He'll try. He'll coerce. He'll lie. All of those things. And and sometimes we will stumble and fall headlong into one of his traps. But all of his words and the words of Pharaoh will ultimately come to nothing concerning that one who was found in Christ on the last day. Now here is the fearful. Here is the dreadful. Here is what will certainly be true of many in that last day. I'm going to read these words again, and I'm going to apply them this time, 
not to a believer who is found in Christ. I'm going to apply them to that one who has rejected Christ, to that one who has heard the gospel and said, nope, that's not for me. The one who will not bow the knee and come to Christ, professing faith and repenting of sin. The one who will not do that. Listen to these words. Sit in that seat and listen to these words. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. And he will. Ultimately, it's the wrath of God poured out on them that destroys them. But just like God permitted all of that stuff with Job, God's going to use the adversary to accomplish his purposes in pouring out his wrath upon those who will not come to Christ. The response of the believer, he would if he could, but he can't. The response of the unbeliever, he would and he can All the more reason for you to run to Christ as the only Savior. And perhaps there are those sitting here this morning that, that say, Man, life in the world is just too fun. I'm going to do that. I know I need to do that, but I'm going to do it when I get old. I'm going to have fun while I can. I'm going to, quote, sow my wild oats. Oh, be careful. Be careful. I have been to and presided over a few, tragically, of young people who have died in their prime, in the glory of their strength, the pictures of health, vibrancy, thinking that the future was theirs and they were going to go after it. The first funeral, how is this for a breaking in? The first funeral that I ever did was for a 16-year-old girl. Her death was not a tragedy accident, accidentally. It was a physical nature. But it wasn't too many years that I presided over the death of a 17-year-old whose death was accidental. My point to you is young people die. It's obvious old people die, right? No one lives forever. But I remember very keenly being your age. Young men, I remember being a teenager thinking that I was invincible. That, that lasted even into the next decade for me. <laughs> thinking that I could overcome any obstacle that I was strong enough to, to beat any foe, I remember thinking that, that maybe I'm going to be the one who's going to live forever. <laughs> maybe I'm the one who's going to, to make it. Uh, don't think that anymore. The point is, there is a day appointed for your death. The Lord only knows it. Your days are numbered. It is appointed for you once to die, and after that, the judgment my appeal to you this morning is, as you sit here this morning, today, right now, is the day of salvation.
the third point out of this psalm, excuse me, this song. Notice that, these, that this praise of Moses is formed in words of truth. Moses did not make up things about God and sing them in praise to God. Moses did not come up with some clever lyrics and then began to sing them to the Lord in, in praise. Notice what he says in verses 11 through 13. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? One of the great revelations in all of Scripture is that God is preeminently holy. That's the message of the Scriptures, right? God is thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, which is a reference to the power of God. The earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You should say amen at that point. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. That applies to you and me. The Lord is even now leading forth the people whom he has redeemed. You've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Now quickly, the last point. And listen to all of these words at this point. It's lengthy, I get it. I know that. It's not, you know, wouldn't score me a lot of points in a preaching class, but makes the point after all. When the true people of God praise God in truth, the nations are affected. The unbelieving masses are affected by what is happening right here in this place right now. We may not be able to perceive it. We, not, we can't really understand it, but we know the scripture is true, right? So notice what verse 14 says. When the people hear, they will be afraid. Now it lists all different kinds of people groups. The Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites. But I want to read for you the words that describe the way that they react to the true people of God praising God in truth. Verse 14 says they will be afraid and that they will sorrow. Verse 15 says they will be dismayed and trembling and melting away. Verse 16 says fear and dread will fall on them, and they will be still as a stone. They will be brought. They will be brought into all of this judgment. I can't fully explain it to you, but I know that it is the purpose and intent of God to make Himself known through real and true worship. Perhaps you said here this morning as one afraid, sorrowful, dismayed, trembling, melting away in fear and dread, still as a stone, because you have observed through singing, through reading, through preaching, through praying, the true people of God, worshiping the true God in truth. And it's had an effect on you. Let me say clearly and plainly, it's supposed to. It's supposed to. It's the mercy of God. If you are sitting here afraid this morning, just know this. It's the mercy of God given to you. If you are sitting here this morning dismayed and feel like your heart is melting away in fear and dread, that's the mercy and grace of God given to you in this moment. And it will pass. 
I said this a couple of weeks ago. I'll say it again. As soon as you get up and go out those doors, a hundred things are going to distract you. The fear is going to dissipate. You're no longer going to feel like you're melting away. You're going to resume strength with every step that you take through the parking lot. You are resuming your strength. The birds are coming and snatching away the seed of truth that is being sown in your heart right now. The most foolish thing that you could ever do is leave this place without trusting Christ. The gospel is very simple. We're all sinful. In Adam, we all died. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he fell and all of his posterity was plunged into fallenness. And there we remain, unable to do a single thing about it. But God, right? Ephesians 2, 4. But God intervened. God sent Christ, His perfect, sinless, spotless, blameless Son. And that Son willingly came. He wasn't coerced. He willingly was dispatched on this greatest rescue mission ever. And he ultimately found himself hanging. Let me rephrase that. He didn't find himself there like he was out of his element or it happened by happenstance. He willingly went to the cross. Died in the place of sinners. Absorbed the wrath of God. Died. Shed his life's blood. Drew his last breath. Was put in a tomb. Stayed there for three days. On the third day, miraculously, with divine power, the same power that is at work in me and you, even now, the scripture says, God raised him from the dead, where he triumphed gloriously over sin, death, the grave, the devil, everything representative of death. And then after 40 days, he ascended back into heaven where he is at the right hand of God, waiting even now for the Father to say, My son, it is time. And what did we sing earlier? And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back like a scroll. That day's coming. Malachi, the last prophet, says it's burning like an oven. It's hot, it's prepared, it's ready. Come to Jesus. He will not turn you away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of Moses. We thank you, Lord, for the deliverance that you have wrought for us. We thank you for the sea that has parted, the land that has become dry, and the steps of faith that we take as we come to Christ. We thank you, Lord, for awakening us to our our need. And Lord, we pray, oh God, we pray with fervency and with zeal that you would awaken any in this room to their need. Even now, God, you can, we know. We're not doubting your ability. We're submitting to your perfect will.
Lord, would you do it for your own glory and for the good of all? Lord, would you work by your spirit and do that work in accordance to the truth? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.